0: are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Gavin Douglas. He's a PhD candidate at uh, Langeo Lab. In the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Dalhousie University. And we're going to talk about uh, what he calls missing heritability and uh, the role yeah. of the microbiome in it. So, Gavin, yeah, thanks for coming.
2: Thanks a lot for the invitation.
1: Yeah, I know that uh, some people have said that the microbiome should be considered an extension of our human genome. But what? Um, tell me about your your research and what's this this controversy of missing heritability.
2: So, yeah, there's different concepts there. So, uh, first of all, just so everyone's on the same page, uh, heritability—it's—it's it's kind of a notoriously confusing topic. Um, and so, it, but most basically, it's defined as the proportion of the variance in a phenotype. So, for height, for instance, how much variation there is in a given population that you can explain by genetic variance. That's—that's so that's all it means. It's really a statistical measure. And uh, so, with so, getting into what missing heritability is, uh, traditionally this has been uh, sort of measured using twin studies. So, looking at pairs of identical and uh, fraternal twins, and then looking how similar their traits are. So, essentially, if there's no difference in how in the similarity between pairs of fraternal and identical twins, that would uh, one. The main way to interpret that is essentially the environment's driving uh, how that trait. Uh, emerges in humans and so if if you do see it that identical twins are more similar that means that that there is some genetic there's some heritability of that trait and so that's been the the typical approach that's been used yeah and uh, so that's sort of like classical heritability studies and then uh, within the last uh, 15 years or so there's been a push to do sort of large-scale sequencing and doing uh, like SNP chips so a lot of people are familiar with 23andMe so they would have genetic profiles of of the whole of the majority of the, of the common variation in the human genome, and so using that kind of information you can do genome-wide association studies. And so essentially rather than looking at, you know, these correlations between pairs of twins or other familial studies, looking at individual associations between a phenotype and a specific mutation. And so that’s been a, you know a really exciting area, but this whole controversy has arisen, and some would say that it's uh, you know, there's there's been so much Uh, criticism and discussion of this topic, but it it arose as as in terms of the case of the missing heritability. So saying, okay, based on uh, traditional studies, we might find a a heritability for uh, schizophrenia, for instance, of around 81%. So 81% of the variation in the phenotype can be explained by genetic variation. But if you look at at least uh, early studies in schizophrenia doing GWAS, genome-wide association studies, only about 3% of the heritability can be explained it just based on the significant mutations they identified associated with schizophrenia. So it's, it's clearly there's a, a huge gap here between the specific mutations you can link to the trait, and then how heritable you think the trait actually is. And so this is actually true for yeah, it's it's quite interesting. So this is true for most uh, human traits. Um, and so as you can imagine, there's been a, there's been a lot of interest about this. And so uh, from all sorts of different subfields of biology. And outside of biology, people have come up with hypotheses for what could be driving this. Uh, And so...
1: I have a question here. Um, I've learned a bit about, you know, uh, spermatogenesis, for instance. So I know, like, the epididymis creates extracellular vesicles that, you know, seem to go in and modify the sperm. And there's, you know, there's a bunch of, like, EVs that that affect sperm. So uh, I would think the EVs would be modulated by... The environmental conditions of a given organism, and not just by its underlying genes. Um, so I don't know, how, you know, I mean, for a given person that has, you know, a given set of genes, uh, environment may may dramatically change what gets inherited, what gets what, what doesn't. You know.
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I haven't I haven't thought about that uh, that case specifically, but uh, like more generally, statistically, there's well certainly in terms of how. Genetic material actually affect phenotypes. There's a really Im- it's really important to take into account gene by environment interactions. Uh, in terms of how the environment can affect what alleles are passed down, that's uh, that's something I don't really know much about. But that's that's definitely something that's really interesting. Um, okay, yeah. So no, no that's, it's it's not one of the uh, not one of the main, at least in terms of missing heritability. It's not sort of like the main factors people would point to. So, for, uh, so in terms of those factors, the big one would be that uh, there are likely many rare uh, mutations that are not being captured by typical sequencing approaches. And so perhaps, uh, we, just, you know, just with standard approaches, we don't have high, enough power, not enough uh, individuals included in the study to identify all these really rare associations that might be very weak. Uh, and so there actually is strong evidence for that that is, in fact, what's under what's probably one of the major drivers of missing heritability. So last year, there was a massive study in humans looking at height and uh, sort of taking, using this approach of getting, looking at large cohorts and trying to identify all these weak variants that might be weakly linked to height. And the vast majority of the missing heritability in that case could be explained. So I I do lean towards that as sort of being the the most likely culprit for most traits, although it's possible it's a combination of numerous factors. Uh, So also there's been a lot of talk about, you know, other non-genetic materials, so like epigenetic signals, so, uh, you know, things that might affect gene expression that could be partially heritable, that also might not be captured by a typical genome-wide association study, but would uh, contribute to, uh, potentially, to heritability. Uh, So those are sort of the main factors, and, and related to that are things like, you know, duplications of genes that might not be captured very well by sequencing approaches, that might have an important effect on phenotype, and so also they would have an effect in a classical heritability study. But you wouldn't be able to; you might miss them if you're doing sort of a standard sequencing approach now.
1: What about the, the you know a person's microbiome? Do you yes. think it affects uh, you know what will be inherited and what won't be, and how?
2: Yeah, so that's kind of uh, so sort of the paper that I wrote some colleagues this past year. So essentially, we are getting to that point, that topic. So. The microbiome, of course, is, you know, it refers to all the, the microbes that live on in our body. It's been linked to many different human traits. Um, and so people have also hypothesized, well, you know, it seems like it's our second genome. It's, it, it encodes so many different genes. Uh, it, it's very it's very common to say that, and that perhaps that if we were able to sequence this genetic variation per individual, that might explain the uh, this sort of missing heritability to be able to see for common traits. So it's it's related to this idea of missing genetic variation that might be, like, uh, like copy number variants, for instance. So human genes that you might not be able to see, duplicated of typical sequencing approaches. And so, in terms of how the microbiome affects heritability, I think that's that is an interesting topic. But I'm not. I wouldn't be the best one to speak to about it. Like, so in terms of actually a similar mechanism to what you're speaking about, whether there could be some sort of like uh, meiotic drive or like selection of certain meets depending on the environment that's i think that sounds really interesting but um, that's not something i've uh i know much about but i i think uh that is that's definitely a great question uh but yeah. more oh, wow. uh yeah so more pertinently to this uh discussion though so the microbiome essentially it's related to this idea that the t- microbe and human genes should be considered sort of a, a single superorganism or a, or a single uh Entity that we should just care about all the genetic material that makes up the phenotype of this entity. And so uh, and it's become more co- commonly to refer to this as the holobiont model of, of human microbe interactions. And so essentially, that's sort of the strictest view of, of how we should consider how microbial genetic variation is linked to uh, human traits. And so, uh, and specifically, we were talking about like a combined genome, so microbial and human genomes. That's called the hollow genome, and so this is a, a bit of a controversial area. There's been criticisms about this idea, and so again, the idea would be that, well, maybe on GWAS, if we in- included this microbial genetic variation, maybe we'd be able to capture some of this phenotypic variation that is currently in the missing heritability bin.
1: I think it's it may be more reasonable to say, I'm not going to include you know, the genes of my microbiome, but I will I, I may want to understand that, okay. They're going to affect the epigenetics of my, my cells because you know, my microbiome is in close contact with my cells and trades resources, et cetera. So depending on the environment created by the, you know, my microbiome at a given time, my cells would epigenetically change and adapt, et cetera. So I can see them influencing in that way, but changing the underlying base pairs where you know, I, I don't see that. Also, you know the cells of our body are not really replaceable. You know, if I have like a hepatocyte, yes. I need another hepatocyte. But in the microbiome world, if I have like, I don't know, a given bacteria like E. coli and it does a certain job and produces like a, an enzyme I need, I can also get a different bacteria that will do the same job. It's like a a job center. I don't need yeah. exactly that one species to do it. So uh, to say it's me, I don't know, maybe it's somewhat of a stretch. I
2: well, I totally agree. And so that, I think that's, uh, the criticism against like the strict strictest form of this idea, meaning that where there's a, it's discoupled between the trans, vertical transmission of human genetic material and that predominantly the microbiome is acquired horizontally. So we get it from our environment. And so you're absolutely right. So it doesn't. I totally agree that it it doesn't really make sense to think about uh, humans and microbes as this holobiont because we don't we don't share this. Uh, this well, first of all, we're not under essentially you'd have to be a combined evolutionary unit so uh that, uh, is, that selection acts upon and so that requires the sort of shared uh transmission over generations and so that's it does not occur and so you're absolutely right that this very strict form of this hollow genome approach and in terms especially in terms of whether it's relevant to missing heritability i think is invalid but i think a lot of people would say well that might be true for the majority of microbes well, you know, there's still a minority of, of microbes that still might be tightly linked to vertical transmission. Uh, so there is evidence uh, that mothers can pass on uh, strains to their to their newborns and, you know, immune priming has a, a, you know, is very important for the development of the immune system of newborns. And so it, it's, you know, it's not insane that possibly that this is, uh, you know, it could be important for heritability. Um, and so also people might say, well, you know, you're talking about uh, different microbes that might be needed for, uh, you know, metabolizing certain fibers in your diet or something, uh, and so there might be different bacteria that can fill that role, and so it doesn't really, uh, but those could be thought of almost as like alleles at a locus. So there could be a few different bacteria that, uh, you know, all would provide different genetic variation at that for that specific functional role, and so it's like that's the sort of arguments people would make, I think, and I. I still think it's invalid um and so uh the reason for that first of all is for in terms of this argument about the functional roles and different bacteria being able to fill into them it's still dependent on the environment that can be modulated by the environment very easily and so i still think you know it's the environment's important for a lot of human traits but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about like all environmental factors as as an extension of the human genome um and uh secondly um uh, I think a, a, a great point we made in our paper was that even if there were some really tightly linked transmission from mother to uh, newborn, it's not really clear how that would explain missing heritability specifically. So, there's really no clear mechanism of why there would be higher rates of transmission from a mother to monozygotic twins compared to dizygotic. So, between two identical twins compared to fraternal twins. And so, I think uh, that's kind of an important thing to think about, if we're talking about explaining this missing heritability of the microbiome, there's no reason to think that would be uh, more similar uh, just because you have a more similar genome. And if and if there were such a factor, I would argue it's much more likely to be a gene by environment interaction. So you're, you might have a behavior, or you know, some sort of metabolic feature that uh, makes your makes your microbiome more likely to be colonized by a certain bacteria. It doesn't mean that it, it's an extension of your genome. Um, yeah, and so I think these are important points because it's actually. Oh, sorry, were you going to say something? Oh, no, no, it, it makes sense. Go ahead. Please. Yeah, so it's. I think uh, you know, people new to this area might be saying, "Okay, well, that." I mean, I didn't think the microbiome was extension of the human genome. Like, why does this point need to be made? But it actually does need to be made because uh, it's very often implicitly stated, and and at some points actually explicitly stated as a model for how we should think about uh, human heritability uh, in terms of you know this hollow genome idea. And very common in the microbiome field, people will say, you know, they've identified these associations and then they'll postulate in the discussion section, they'll say, and this could be relevant to missing heritability. So maybe we've identified uh, something here that, you know, could be linked, could be important to include in future genome-wide association studies. And so I think it's uh, I think that's just an error in uh, thinking. And I, so I, I strongly disagree with that idea. I think we should.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
2: It's actually to stop, uh, or at least I don't think we should, uh, I, I think we should give less weight to that idea because I don't, I find it, I don't find it convincing at all. I'll well, just
1: say. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're not, we, we couldn't live if we were a single cell. We're only able to live how we live, you know, because they're multicellular with the cooperation of many, many different cell types. So again, I mean, yeah. in, in terms of the microbiome, we can live without it at well, least rats can in the lab they don't live very well
2: yes they don't live very well but they can live so, i
1: mean we, you know without a microbiome uh, we may live we may not we we certainly won't function nearly as well as we do so it is a necessary part of us but in terms of uh, pure heritability it may not apply as you're saying
0: it yes does seem like it does applies while we're alive
1: it, it very much does affect you know even if i inherit a trait um while I'm alive, my microbiome may mitigate the effect of that trait to the point where maybe it's not observable or it may amplify it or it may do all kinds of things. So it's, I guess it's unclear as to, I mean, if you say like something is missing in terms of heritability, maybe it's not. Maybe it's just to get suppressed or, or amplified. I don't know.
2: Yeah, so I think there's a few things there. So I, I think this kind of gets into the, the question of how useful is it to think of the, like the, the holobiont model in general. So the idea of, you know, sort of a, a combined symbiotic organism of a microbe in humans. And so this, this idea was originally based on pretty tight relationships. So things like humans in our mitochondria, for instance, like that's, that's an endosymbiotic it used to be a free living bacteria that is captured by our cells and now is, now provides energy for us. And so that's a pretty clear example of You know that really is a sort of a super organism that now we just think of as humans. Um, But I don't think, but in terms of you know the microbiome being important for so many traits, and um, you know even notwithstanding heritability, I still don't think it's really helpful to think about human microbiome interactions that way, because there are just so many things in the environment that you know if if we don't you know we lack them growing up, uh, you know various vitamins we get from the environment, for instance. Uh, clearly, we'll have uh, deficient growth, and you know our health will suffer because of that. But that doesn't mean that we should think of those environmental factors as part of us. And so that's that's really how I think of this, the microbiome. Um, but yeah, it is. Uh, it actually that is actually a little controversial. So I think a lot of people w- would disagree because uh, this this term holobiont is used quite often. In the, yeah, but it's, it's certainly an oh,
1: suggestion. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. So what's what's your um, so what do you attribute you know, I guess, quote, unquote, missing heritability. We just can't look deep enough. We can't look clear enough. Or you think it might be uh, something else?
2: I think it's actually really, um, it, it is, it's a difficult question. I think for a certain traits, specifically like height, I think the answer, it, it seems pretty clear that it is just, if we have more statistical power, if we have larger cohorts, we'll be able to identify more of these really weak uh, associations in the human genome and the trait. And then that will largely explain the uh, the missing difference. Uh, it gets a little more complicated with other uh, traits as well. And so um, a, a large criticism has been that you know classical heritability studies are sort of held up as this great standard of you know you know pr- the perfect estimate of what the heritability of a trait really is. And uh, a lot of people don't agree with that. They think that so essentially uh, environmental variation is assumed to be have the same effects on both pairs of identical and fraternal twins. So essentially they're expected to be treated the same by their shared environment. And uh, a lot of people would argue, well, actually identical twins have a very different environment, not only, you know, in in the womb in in some cases, but also uh, growing up, they're treated differently by society. They have different expectations just because of being identical. And so they might, you know, certain aspects of their behavior might reflect that. And so I think that's certain like biases like that in traditional heritability studies, I think also could partially explain why there's such a big gap. Uh, and so I think that's particularly likely to be true for more behavioral uh uh traits, because it's not only really obvious physical traits like height that are that we think of as human phenotypes, but all things like divorce rates, for instance, those are also heritable. Uh, you can explain the variation of that across humans. Uh, I forget the exact percent, but it's, it's non-negligible, and it's that it can be explained by genetic variants. Which, uh, so again, those sort of more complex traits, I think the story is a little more difficult.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't have to associate everything with genetics. The gene is not uh, the end-all, be-all of our existence. Maybe that's, that's partially where the frustration is. If uh, if people can't explain something, you know, genetically, they say it's got to be here somewhere, and they're maybe they're trying to force an explanation of it, you know.
2: Yeah, that's, I mean, that is possibly true. Uh, I think, um, yeah, I think the the key thing is that for a lot of these traits, based on classical heritable studies, the the percent of heritability that was estimated is actually quite high. So ranging from like 70 to 80%. I think the mean for all tested human traits uh, in a a huge uh, twin study that was conducted a few years ago by Polderman and Al, I think it was around 50% heritable. And so, uh, I would agree with you for things that are a little more on the line, but at least if you take the the methods to be sound, uh, it's hard to argue that for a lot of these traits that we're interested in, they're at least uh, highly associative genetic variants, um, which is, I guess, consistent with being heritable. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. I think there's always the possibility, because this is sort of an association test in many ways, it's hard to be uh, 100% confident what really the, but, of the causality of, of what's going on without a real well, how much experience.
1: yeah, how much of the human genome is left to sequence? I had heard there's you know hundreds of holes, but I don't know how big the holes are, and you know what uh, can you express it as a percent that's left or're that really not of interest that are left
2: that's a, it's very difficult to put a percent on it, and that the reason for that is uh within different ethnic groups uh within especially just diff, different families. There could be large blocks of uh, you know gene duplications, um, large blocks where non-coding DNA might be uh, might be duplicated, and so for instance, I believe in African American populations, I'll just pull up this. I mean, the, the take-home message. I don't have the exact numbers here, but the take-home message is that uh, there's huge amounts of uh, copy number variants, so duplicates of these genes. I believe it was in African American populations. Uh, anyway, it, it was specific uh, populations of humans that were had ex- like expanded the human genome by, I believe, around a factor of 5% or something in that range. So it's, it's quite a substantial increase in sort of the genetic potential. And uh, it was essentially not included in sort of standard approaches. And so, standard sort of SNP chips, so arrays of known common alleles. These are often biased towards populations that have already been deeply sequenced, so a lot of European populations, for instance, and so a lot of these known SNPs are present in those arrays, um, those, so single nucleotide polymorphism, so this very common type of mutation. but of a lot of populations and a lot of uh, individual families, there might be stretches with other common SNPs that are just being missed because they haven't been sequenced enough. So I'm not, I don't it's hard to put a percent on it. Uh, there are also sort of the, the more typical answers that in all human genomes, it's very difficult to assemble a highly repetitive DNA in the centromeres and telomeres, and so those regions uh, are also, you uh, sort of are becoming uh, better assembled as longer read technologies become available. But that's still uh, not not perfect, from what I understand. But yeah, and, and but I think the real question is how much sort of in non-repetitive regions of real genic variation is there segregating that we're not capturing.
1: Well, even if a region is repetitive, does that necessarily means that it, it has the same function you know if I have a, a sequence that repeats, but the context is different uh, to the different part of the genome, there's different stuff around it, different methylation, et cetera. you know, perhaps it acts differently. Maybe it's multi-purpose.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely true. So I think that's that kind of speaks to a drawback of looking at just the DNA level. Uh, you can infer things like you can look at, proximity to a gene for instance and infer a transcription factor binding site and say okay this might be involved if regulating this gene and if the same repeated region contained the binding site a little further from the gene you might say it's less likely to be an important binding site but it's hard to those are all those essentially are hypotheses that you need to other sorts of data to corroborate so yeah absolutely context genomically and if other types of uh you know epigenetic signals uh, proteomic signals those that's Definitely key.
1: So what uh, are you going to continue with this line of research? You know, I know that you're a PhD candidate or once you get the PhD, you're going to move on to something else? Like, how has this altered your interest in, uh, in moving forward with research?
2: Uh, this particular project uh, is kind of a little offshoot of my overall PhD work, which isn't mainly, isn't actually focused on human genetics. It's mainly focused on just microbiome data in general and how to best analyze it. Uh, but I did, I did really enjoy working in this piece and, uh, more like it, my background is in evolutionary genetics and, uh, through a few steps, I found myself working on the microbiome and getting interested in this topic. And so I'm hoping to do for a postdoc is sort of combine evolutionary genetics approaches. So trying to identify, uh, the, the relative strengths of natural selection versus neutral processes like genetic drift and how that, uh, how you can identify those processes just based on sequencing data of the microbiome or microbial communities in general. So that's sort of uh, that's sort of where my interests are aimed right now. Sort of combining those two, these two fields, and continuing with bioinformatics in this area.
1: Hmm. Okay. Well, very good, Gavin. What's the best way for people to find out more about uh, your work as it comes?
2: Well, uh, they can follow me at Gavin underscore M underscore Douglas. On Twitter, I always post uh, anything I'm working on on there, and uh, they can find this paper that we were talking about. It's published in the journal Microbiome, which is open access, and it's called "Reevaluating the Relationship Between the Microbiome and the Heritability: Between Missing Heritability and the Microbiome." Mm-hmm. So you can find that online.
1: Okay. Well, very good, Kevin, Thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
2: Well,
0: yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. If you like this podcast